It all started because a 12-year-old boy climbed a peach tree. And an Apache warrior decided to look up. It was a cold morning in late January, and the boy, short, skinny, with fair skin and a mess of red hair that belied his half-Mexican heritage, was hard at work on his stepfather's ranch, tending to goats and sheep. The property was situated along Sonoida Creek, tucked into a narrow canyon near what we today call Patagonia, on the north side of the mountains of the same name. It wasn't much, maybe a few collections of haphazard buildings with a small garden and some trees, plus the collection of goats, sheep, and a few head of cattle. But the spring-fed creek flowed year-round, and it had enough grass and timber nearby to make it as good a place as any in the Sonoran Desert to make a go at eking out a living. Still, it was a lonely place. Tucson was more than 50 miles away, with Tubac, still run by that great self-promoter Charles Poston, being a bit closer, at roughly 35 miles. There was some comfort in knowing that the U.S. Army had troops stationed just a dozen or so miles away at Fort Buchanan, but it would still take hours to get there should anything happen at the ranch. There's no way to know what the boy was thinking that morning as he cared for the animals. He couldn't have had an inkling of the firestorm he would help touch off in just a matter of minutes. As with all things that involve the Apache, everything happened in a blur. If it was the dust from the marauder's horses, or terrified shouts from his family, or the cries of the warriors themselves, the boy suddenly became aware of the attack. It was a dozen Apache, painted and armed, that suddenly sprang onto the ranch. Some went instantly for the livestock, others for the farmhouse. The boy must have been terrified. After all, this was the nightmare scenario for anyone living in this part of the desert. The single terror that had dominated since the Spaniards had first set foot in the area more than a century and a half beforehand. Looking around, he saw his mother and other family members run to the cover of a grove of nearby peach trees. He did likewise, but decided to climb into one of the trees to hide the best he could. While the raiding party was rounding up the cattle, the leader steered his horse over to the grove. And that's when he looked up and saw the boy. Though raised by Apache, the leader was Mexican by birth, with a heavily scarred face adorned with a leather patch to cover a missing eye. He could see that the boy too was looking back at him with only one good eye. The boy could have reasonably expected to have been killed on the spot. He was older than those usually taken in such raids. But maybe it was the way he cowered in the tree, or a sympathetic twinge due to their shared impairment, but the Apache leader beckoned the boy to come down. Once he had, the Apache had the boy get on his own horse. Then they were off like a flash to join the raiding party, which was quickly disappearing into the distance. They had no idea what they had just unleashed. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 35, The Bascom Affair, Part 2, Cut the Tent. 
Ladies and gentlemen, congratulations. Believe it or not, you just listened to a short recap of what I hinted at all of last week. The minor, almost innocuous incident that is the spark that would blow up the powder keg that is Cochise and the Chiricahua Apaches. That's right. It was the kidnapping of this boy and the response to it that would set up the conflict with Cochise, Mangos Coloradas, Geronimo, and what is still the longest war in United States history. How, you ask? Well, in the words of Wesley from The Princess Bride, I myself am often surprised at life's little quirks. It all starts with a man named John Ward. Well, Really, it all starts with the underlying tension between the Apache and the encroaching Americans that we talked about last week, but John Ward is part of that underlying trend. He had been born in Ireland in 1806, and had crossed the ocean to America in the 1840s, part of the larger migration of Irish immigrants to the New World during that decade, especially once the famed potato famine back home got going in 1845. Like many, he was not content to stay on the East Coast and drifted west to try his hand in the California goldfields. Also, like many, any dreams of riches in California were not realized, and by 1857 we see him drifting into Arizona at Yuma to seek better fortunes. He would wind up passing through Tubac and spending an evening with none other than Charles Poston. And here we start getting the first of limited accounts of Ward's character, which are not complimentary at all. Poston wrote that Ward was, quote, a somber son of Aaron, end quote, who applied to him for some food. He then writes, quote, whether he had been run out of California by the Vigilance Committee, as many of our guests had been, or was escaping legitimate justice, was not in question, end quote. Just so you know, the Vigilance Committee was a vigilante posse formed in San Francisco in the 1850s to help drive out the riffraff and other undesirable types in the rapidly growing city. Other historians often talk about Ward along the same line, claiming that he had been run out of California and was, in one historian's words, quote, in all respects, a worthless character, end quote. Poston remarks that after feeding Ward, the new arrival asked to be able to sleep in his home for the night. Poston allowed this, but made extra sure to bar and lock the door between himself and Ward. Scallywag though he may have been, there is no doubt that Ward knew how to work. With some advice from Poston, he moved eastward toward the recently opened Fort Buchanan to find gainful employment. He soon had a contract to haul hay and wood from the Santa Rita Mountains to the fort, which was lucrative enough that he could invest in a 160-acre ranch site along Sonoida Creek, in a fairly narrow canyon about two miles south of where it turns to start flowing toward the Santa Cruz River. Here he built some buildings, including a 60-by-16-foot two-room adobe home that was actually pretty large by frontier standards. Ward would plant corn and barley, the peach trees mentioned earlier, and, of course, acquire some livestock. To get said livestock, he would often go down to Santa Cruz in Sonora, and it's here he first met Jesus Maria Martinez. Though scandalously unmarried, she had already born a son, Felix, at the age of 17, and had a daughter, Teodora, at the age of 19. 
Martinez caught the Irishman's eye, and he invited her and her children to come live with him on his ranch in 1858. Felix would have been nine or ten at the time. His birth father, whose last name was Teles, had Northern European heritage because Felix was born with both fair skin and red hair. He also had a dead left eye. I've seen a few explanations for what had happened to it, ranging from a cataract contracted as an infant to an accident involving a wounded deer. Felix would take his common law stepfather's name and settled into life at the ranch. This is where he would be on January 27, 1861, when the Apaches raided the ranch. The attack happened in the morning and was quick. Eventually, the Apache retreated with stolen livestock and one probably terrified boy. John Ward was not at the ranch at the time, something that may have factored into the Apache's decision to attack at that moment, but he did return later in the day. Martinez was inconsolable at the loss of her child, but was otherwise unharmed. Ward decided to immediately report the incident to Fort Buchanan, roughly 12 miles to the northeast. Now, when I say fort, you probably have in your mind the image of a collection of buildings or tents in neat rows wrapped inside wooden palisades with maybe a training ground and the American flag flying, with officers and soldiers drilling and everything in military precision. I want you to lose that image right now. In his book about the Bascom Affair, author Terry Mort says that most often these installations called forts were nothing more than a ramshackle collection of buildings, mostly without defensive walls or palisades. Forts, he writes, looked less like imposing military installations and more like frontier villages sprung from nothing and expecting to return there sooner rather than later. He also described Fort Buchanan in particular as, quote, an uncomfortable eyesore, end quote. But it did have two companies of dragoons and two companies of the 7th Infantry Station there, making it at least relevant to the area. And this is where Ward went to demand something be done to find his stepson. You might remember from episode 31 that the fort had been founded by Major Enoch Steen in 1857. It had gone through two command shifts since then and was now overseen by Lieutenant Colonel Pitcairn Morrison. The one thing everyone points out about Morrison is that he was 65, so basically with one foot in retirement already. How much his advanced age and or any ambitions he may still have had for his career played into his orders is kind of hard to suss out. Though two of the four companies of dragoons originally assigned to Fort Buchanan had recently been reassigned to Fort Breckenridge on the San Pedro, Morrison did put a force of more than 50 soldiers on this task. However, as Mort points out, this group was not looking at this as any sort of war situation, but more likely a police action, especially because they considered the Apaches to be more thieves and robbers than actual threats. That could play into why command of this group was given to 2nd Lieutenant George Nicholas Bascom. Given the fact that this is all going to be called the Bascom Affair, you can probably imagine how this is going to go for our eager young second lieutenant. But before we can get into how exactly he received his ignominious chapter in Arizona history, 
it's worth diving into who exactly Bascom was. George Nicholas Bascom was born in Owingsville, a small community in northeastern Kentucky, in 1837. He attended and graduated from West Point in 1858, and historians simply love to point out the fact that he graduated 26th in a class of 27. And while sure that's not exactly something you want to highlight on a resume, Mort does make the fair point that given how often cadets washed out of West Point, just graduating was an accomplishment. We should also mention what West Point did not teach Bascom, and this is how to interact, militarily or otherwise, with Native Americans. Part of this is because of the ingrained culture at the school that West Point was primarily an engineering school. This was a carryover from the European military schools it was based on, which emphasized the scientific corps as the top of the military pecking order. Some of the thought behind this was that a logically trained mind could suss out tactics and logistics in military situations. Part of it is also the notion that the primary job of the U.S. Army was to fight fellow nation-states, which understood how war was supposed to be waged. And there's also the fact that even if they did think of studying how to interact with Amerindians, how would they cover every possible encounter? Do you emphasize the tactics of, say, the Plains people, who would one day take out Custer at Little Bighorn? Or those of, again, just a hypothetical, the Apache, which were completely different? You see the problem? Because he had graduated from West Point, Bascom was made a brevet second lieutenant. The brevet part indicates it was an honorary rank, granted because he had graduated from the only federal military academy in the country. He would not get his actual commission for nearly nine months, due to rank advancement at the time being by seniority only, so he had to await a slot to come open. Immediately after graduation, and while waiting for his commission, Bascom was stationed at Fort Columbus on Governor's Island in New York, where he drilled new infantry recruits. In April 1859, his nine months of waiting were over, and Bascom received his commission, and orders to join the 7th Infantry Regiment heading west to Salt Lake City to participate in what is known as the Mormon War. Now, the details of the Mormon War are a little outside our purview, but suffice it to say that in Utah, early and often, members of the religion clashed with the territorial officials appointed over them by those in Washington. Their unique religious notions, devotion to their spiritual leaders, and mistrust for the U.S. government, which they viewed as having done very little or nothing to help them during their persecutions in the East, led to recriminations on both sides. Eventually, enough rumors, hearsay, and outright slander had convinced President James Buchanan that the Mormons were in revolt and he sent the army to put it down. From the Mormon perspective, the government was coming to destroy them once and for all, and they prepared to make a stand. Finally, talks were set up and this never erupted into a full-out war. In time, this would become known as Buchanan's Blunder, but it did bring army officers like Bascom out west. During his year in Utah, Bascom saw no combat, and this was probably his first time actually interacting with Amerindians, though only distantly. 
Then, in 1860, news came down of a change of station. On April 30th, 1860, more than a thousand Navajo, under two prominent leaders, descended on Fort Defiance in northeastern Arizona and came close to overrunning the garrison completely. The fort, as you might remember from my very brief mention in episode 31, had been established in 1851 to essentially keep an eye on the Navajo. This led to more than a little tension, especially as the fort had been built on good pasture land that the U.S. Army then forbid the Navajo from using. Violence had broken out once before in 1856, when the Navajo accused a U.S. soldier of tripping a horse during one of many races held nearby. Relations never really improved after that. But the 1860 battle had led to the death of 20 Navajo and one U.S. Army soldier, plus many more wounded. It also led to a reallocation of troops, with two companies of the 7th Infantry being transferred to southern Arizona, which is how Bascom ended up at Fort Buchanan. Now, history books love to paint Bascom as almost a tragic figure, the utterly wrong person in the utterly wrong place at the utterly wrong time, and usually describe him in phrases that more or less say, grossly inexperienced, though most give him some token lip service as being brave. And they have something of a point. He had seen no combat since leaving West Point, and knew hardly anything about the natives, aside from what he could have learned from his fellow soldiers or local settlers, which would have been nothing but biased. But at the same time, it's hard to imagine that others would have had a much better go of it. Maybe someone with more experience in Arizona and with the Apaches would have done things differently, but personally I think you could replace Bascom with any young army officer of the time and the results might have been the same. Nevertheless, Bascom was the man put in charge of tracking down the kidnappers of Felix Ward. The orders that came down from Lieutenant Colonel Morrison were to pursue the raiders and recover the boy. In addition, Morrison said Bascom was authorized and instructed to use the force necessary to do so. This last bit, giving Bascom free hand to determine how harsh to be in following his orders, may also have played into how things are going to turn out. Hint, not well. Bascom and the men under him examined the trail made by the raiders on the day of the kidnapping, determining that they led to the east, straight to Apache Pass. And now comes one of those ironic twists of fate that both history and myself love so much. You see, I have referred to those who kidnapped Felix Ward as Apaches. But remember from our episode two weeks ago that the term Apache covers a wide range of people that Americans were really bad at distinguishing between. Because the actual culprits were not members of Cochise's Chaconan Band, or even of the larger Chiricahua group. They were actually Pinal or Coyotero Apache, coming from the area of modern-day Gila County and completely unrelated to Cochise or his followers. Whether the Pinal Apaches designed it so, or Bascom made a mistake in his tracking, their trail seemed to lead east and not north, so Cochise was blamed. Of course, from our episode last week, you might remember that Cochise and his Chiricahua and Apaches were being blamed for a lot these days. 
though admittedly they deserved most of it. Some historians also point out that Morrison and his predecessor at Fort Buchanan had been thinking for some time that they needed to give Cochise something of a bloody nose to help put down all this raiding nonsense, which also would explain the authorization to use force when retrieving Felix Ward. So when Bascom reported that the trail seemed to lead toward Apache Pass, everyone was ready to believe that Cochise, or those under him, had carried out the raid. On Tuesday, January 29, 1861, two days after Felix was snatched away, Bascom and his company of 54 men, a mixture of dragoons and infantry, marched out of Fort Buchanan and toward the Chiricahua Mountains. Can you hear the ominous thunderclap in the distance? Now, something to keep in mind as we move forward. Cochise biographer Edwin R. Sweeney points out that piecing together the exact order of events that happened next is extremely difficult. Most of the major American sources were written decades after the fact, many by men that missed the first few days of the incident, and some have proven to be wholly unreliable. Baskin's own reports are trying to justify his actions, so they are generally regarded as unreliable as well. We also have a handful of Apache accounts, related years later, and even something that Cochise would say in 1870, though he never spoke much about it. All of this is to say that there will be times when it will be impossible to say what exactly happened, though we do know the broad strokes. The outfit rode out slowly across the Sulphur Springs Valley before reaching Apache Pass on Sunday, February 3rd, 1861, so five days after setting out from Fort Buchanan and a week after the kidnapping of Felix Ward. Near Apache Pass, the company discovered a 13-man contingent led by Sergeant Daniel Robinson, one of our best sources for the Bascom Affair, by the way, who was returning with four wagons after having delivered supplies to Fort McLean near Pinos Altos along the Mimbras River in New Mexico. Robinson and his men were added to the expedition, which went ahead and made camp at Siphon Canyon, about a mile away from the Apache Pass station for the Butterfield Mail Line. Most of my sources point out that Cochise was probably well aware of this expedition long before they got anywhere near Apache Pass. But seeing as marching U.S. Army troops was becoming more and more the norm, and that Cochise had no idea about the incident at John Ward's ranch, he had no reason to be concerned. That same day, the Army discussed the situation with Charles Culver, who had replaced Tevis as the station manager, his assistant, Robert Welch, and stage driver, James Wallace. Culver and Wallace in particular considered themselves on good terms with Cochise, though they may have either underestimated the Chaconan chief or overestimated their relationship with him. Also at the station were two women, who were from Cochise's band, though they may have been either part or full-blooded Mexican. One, Juanita, was said to be very pretty, and would prove to be something of a femme fatale for Wallace, the stage driver. When questioned by Robinson and by John Ward, who came along as an interpreter, they replied that they knew nothing of the kidnapping. They were then sent to Cochise to request a parley. Cochise did not come immediately, and Sweeney speculates that he may have sent runners to the Pinal Apache to discover what he could of the incident first. But when Cochise did not turn up, 
Bascom told Wallace to go to the Chaconan camp and repeat the request for a parlay. I've seen it both that Wallace was sent the same day as the two women, or on the next day, Monday, February 4th, with the majority agreeing that it was on Monday, after Bascom grew impatient of waiting overnight. Despite believing himself to be on good terms with Cochise, it took some conjoling to get Wallace to go. Finally, either around midday or in the afternoon on Monday, Cochise arrived at the army camp. My sources universally point out that he obviously wasn't expecting any hostilities because he brought with him his wife, Mangus Colorado's daughter, Dotese, two of his children, his brother, Conjuntura, and two or three additional warriors who were probably his nephews. It has also been pointed out that they did not bring rifles, lances, or bows with them. After the initial pleasantries, Cochise and his brother were invited into Bascom's tent. The rest of the Chaconan party was either taken to a different tent or waited outside. Inside, the pair were offered coffee in tin cups, though Bascom wasted little more time on pretense. Through Ward, who translated English into the broken Spanish that both he and Cochise spoke, Bascom made the accusation that Cochise's raiders had taken the boy and he demanded his return. Cochise, actually innocent this time, protested that he didn't know anything. Surprise, surprise, Bascom didn't believe him. How exactly the conversation went after that is still a matter of debate and controversy. Some sources indicate that Cochise offered to try and procure the boy if given time. In his report, Bascom says that he took the leader up on this entirely generous offer, though his subsequent actions seem to call that into question. As talks were quickly breaking down, Bascom announced that until the boy was recovered, Cochise and his party would be kept as hostages. Robinson, one of the more reliable sources, says his understanding was that Coyuntura was to be sent to recover the boy, while Cochise stayed as a hostage. It also appears that Bascom had, prior to the meeting, ordered guards to surround his tent and the tent with the other Apache, or at the very least ordered that no Apache was to leave camp without his permission. Whatever the order of events, Cochise was angered by both the accusation and this provocative move. Seeing that they were being hemmed in, he and Coyuntur both whipped out small knives. Cochise lunged at the side of the tent, cutting it open and escaping through the hole. Because of this, the Apache afterward always referred to the Bascom affair as cut the tent. Coyuntur tried to follow his brother, but either tripped or was otherwise apprehended. The camp broke out into chaos as the other members of the party realized what was happening. There are accounts of two warriors making a break for it, but one was pinned to the ground with a bayonet by a nearby soldier. Everyone agrees that at this point, Bascom yelled out, shoot them down. Eyewitnesses estimate that at least 50 bullets were then fired in the direction of Cochise and the other escaping warrior. Cochise took a bullet in the lake, dripping blood as he ran up the mountainside. Something you might also remember from a couple weeks ago, young Apache men were trained to do since their teenage years. The other warrior was not so lucky. There are various accounts of his death, but most agree that he stopped to tangle with a soldier who was hot on his heels, but in the end he wound up on the wrong side of the business end of a rifle.
The fact that Cochise could literally escape in a hail of bullets might seem miraculous, but Mort said that marksmanship was not that heavily stressed during basic army training for the sheer fact that bullets were expensive and there was little to waste on shooting at targets instead of enemies. He does point out, however, that the fact that the soldiers were able to get shots off so quickly means the guns had most likely been loaded ahead of time, possibly indicating that Bascom was preparing for a fight well before negotiations even got started. Cochise made it to the top of the hill with just the wound on his leg, but his brother, wife, children, and possibly nephews were now hostages of Bascom. According to Apache oral tradition, only once at the top of the ridge did Cochise realize he was still holding the tin coffee cup Bascom had offered him. An hour or so later, Cochise came back into view on the ridge, shouting down that he wanted to see his brother. He also promised no vengeance should the hostages be released. Bascom, maybe assuming an in-for-a-penny, in-for-a-pound mentality, responded by having his men fire another volley at the Apache leader. And it's at this point, right here, that Cochise stopped being just another Apache leader and became Cochise, the Great and Terrible. He now swore vengeance and shouted down that he and his people had been falsely accused before disappearing into the hills again. Spooked, Bascom ordered his men to break camp and to move back to the more defensible position near the mail station. Robinson, in something of a brave move, volunteered to get necessary water from a spring further up the canyon. I also have one source that has Wallace, the stage driver, berating Bascom for what just happened and for destroying peaceful relations with Cochise. That night, as the new camp was set up, the men could see spots of orange glow in the mountains around them, signal fires lit by Cochise to summon more Apache to him. The Bascom affair was now in full swing and rushing toward its bloody conclusion. Join me next week as we covered the days that followed Cut the Tent, which would lead to atrocities that would long stay in the memories of Apache and Americans alike. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.